Hello strangers and welcome to episode, what are we Jack, 84? Yes. 84 of the Strangers in the Cinema podcast. A bit of an unusual setup or out of the ordinary for, for us anyway this week because we are utilising uh, Jack's extensive tech skills to, uh, by the magic of Skype and the internet, to connect with Claire Clark who has been on the show before uh, in the absence of Paul, regular co-host Paul that you may all know and um, you know tolerate who is currently unavailable to the show because he's got 101 things to move from, from his home all the way to uh, Bath. We've been talking about this recently on the show. I don't think anyone's that interested in it, so we'll carry on with the rest of what we, uh, we usually get to. First of all, as always, we have our section of um, kind of loose conversation known as In the Foyer, and we want to talk about something from the world of film that we might have been thinking about, or might even seamlessly tie in with one of our features. Uh, we have two features on this week's show. They will be Wes Anderson's stop-motion animation, Isle of Dogs, following up on his first uh, stop-motion, which was, of course, 2009's Fantastic Mr. Fox. And then we're also going to um, review a film called Blockers, which I previewed recently, which might fill people with trepidation and, and sort of a bit of confusion as to why we're covering a kind of throwaway comedy movie, but you'll maybe see that there are some redeeming qualities there, um, not least uh, a particular part of John Cena's anatomy, but that's all for later. Um, first of all, welcome Claire. How are you? Hello. Thank goodness we finally got you connected. <laughs> I know, I think we had a bit of trouble at both ends, but that's the, the adventures of Skype, I guess. A, a bit of trouble at both ends, a little bit like the aforementioned John Cena. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, so, we're here, first of all, to talk about uh, uh, something that ties in, actually, not with blockers, probably, thankfully, but with the other film, Isle of Dogs, which I think, Claire, um, if I'm not mistaken, you were really anticipating quite hotly before you um, agreed or were able to come on the show. Is that right? You're kind of a bit of a Wes Anderson devotee, as I understand. I am. I am. I love his stuff. It's just... He's a genre of his own in that his films have got these characters that you can't help but fall in love with and the visuals. I'm a very um, aesthetic loving person. So the, the symmetry and the colour and all of the design is just, it's, it's art, it's beautiful, I love it. Mm. So with all of that, um, all of those superlatives in mind, what else do you like in the world of animated movies? Basically, what I want to kick off with is the question, what is a standout animated film for you? It doesn't have to be, per se, the one you think is the best, but just one maybe you think people should see. What comes to mind in terms of animated movies? Oh, so many. So many, because there's the whole um, studio uh, Ghibli... Is that the right way to pronounce it? Everyone pronounces it differently. Yeah. Ghibli... I, I, I'm not sure either. Yeah, G G Ghibli, Ghibli. Ghibli. Jack says Ghibli, but then he changed it to Ghibli. So, uh, yeah, take take your pick, whatever you like. Well, just looking at those, um, My Neighbour Totoro is a standout one for me. And then, um, another, like um, Isle of Dogs, the stop motion animation of um, things like My Life as a Courgette, which I believe you've um, spoke about on the podcast for. Yeah, it was, is... on, it was on my top 10 of last year, actually. I thought it was fantastic. It's, just, it's a really lovely story and just really 
well, the tone of it is perfect for adults and kids. And then there's the more adult animations like um, Animalisa, the Charlie Kaufman. Yeah. Uh, that's very, very adult, very dark, which is kind of, it's nice to see adult films animated because it just it does bring something very different to a film. But my absolute favourite that I can watch time and time again and never get bored of is um, Monsters, Inc. Wow. Oh, so we went, we went through Studio Ghibli and we went yeah. to Charlie Kaufman and we ended up at Monsters, Inc. So yeah. what, what is it that sticks with you about, about Monsters, Inc.? It must have been like a decade since I've seen that movie, but uh, what, why does it stand out? For me, the casting is just brilliant. The, uh, Billy Crystal and John Goodman, the chemistry, I don't think they were probably in the same sound booth when they recorded it, but the chemistry between those characters is fantastic. And then there's the animation, you know, with Sully, this beautiful, big, blue, furry monster. Um, and every hair on his body moves. In, oh, it's just really, really beautifully done. And it was of its time. It was like now we're watching films like Peter Rabbit, which is jaw dropping, you know, it's yeah. so detailed and Paddington and things like that. But with this, it was like the first look at just how real and detailed animation can get. And then on top of that is the story. The fact that someone thought up um, this whole thing about wardrobe doors um, and how that was how the monsters get in and out of our world and they collect the children's screams to power their, their universe. Um, it's just very clever. It's all the details. I, I, I just can watch it over and over and see something new in it. And it's very funny, which is always a bonus. And again, um, we, you know, I, I ask these kind of questions because we've met only a couple of times just to fill people in. But um, Claire, I believe it's true that you're a mother. Is that right? I am. Yeah. I'm yeah. Too. So um, Monsters, Inc., from that point of view, has that yet crossed over into something that your kids can watch or have watched? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's great. I've got um, Amelie, who's nearly nine, and Bonnie, who's nearly five, and we watch films together a lot. Um, and, um, yeah, Monsters, Inc., all of the kind of the Disney, Pixar stuff, that's, you know, on a lot. But then we can sit down and watch, uh, um, like with my eldest, we sat down and watched My Life as a Courgette together, and that opened loads of great dialogue and conversations about stuff. So, yeah, we've Watching films with kids, you can sometimes watch it in a very different angle and it opens up conversations about things that should be talked about. Um, and then there's the whole entertainment and then there's the just sitting and having a laugh, mm. which is really important, just having sofa time, a bit of quiet time where we all sit down and watch a film. Um, so there are the films that we watch over and over and over again, like Hotel Transylvania, which still entertains me actually. <laughs> There's a third one coming out soon, which is quite exciting. I can I can very I can very much relate because my cat Arrow is quite a fan of uh, Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli as well. Um, she's got a lot of positive things to uh, meow about that stuff. <laughs> um, from from my side of, of this conversation, I guess that um, I, like you, Claire, I sort of went around the houses a little bit and thought like there are loads of things that I could pick out for attention. But really, I wanted to lean into something that people maybe haven't seen and should. So this is why in the end I've gone for um, a strange but beautiful film called It's Such a Beautiful Day. Um, this is a film that is sort of a, a, a 
portmanteau, I guess, of, or a, yeah, I guess that's the right word for it, of three short films that were then stitched together from the animator and writer Don Hertzfeldt. And it's a kind of, um, he's got this inimitable art style, which is like pencil drawings, but the animation, which is filmed or, or recorded, I believe, in camera, and then they use some sort of in-camera effects, visual effects and that kind of thing, tells a story of real, like, existential weight. So it's funny, it's entertaining, it's not for children, I would say. Mm -hmm. It's very much like an adult cartoon because of the themes that the narrator of the story... It's all about this guy called Bill, who is essentially a, a stick figure, and he's struggling to put back together his shattered psyche. Um, so it's kind of heavy stuff, but the mind at work here is almost, to me, unparalleled in animated work that I've that I've seen I guess do you know what this thing is I've never heard of it so this is this is an education for me well it, it's unfortunate though that when I went to um research and sort of like include this on this in this section I thought that it was still running on Netflix and that would have been great to sort of throw that out to people it seems that at least in the UK it's been taken off Netflix at some point because that's where I think I, I first saw it. Um, hopefully it will reappear on one of the streaming services. It's currently holding a meta score uh, for what that's worth of 90 from 100. So fairly universally critically acclaimed. It runs all of 100 and... Uh, 100. One hour and two minutes. So just over an hour because like I said, it's sort of like three 20-minute shorts that have ended up being then converted into a feature length sort of anthology of stories about this central character. And I mean, interesting that I bring this one up, I guess, because Claire, you're involved so much with uh, Exit Six and yeah. short films anyway. And you were saying before we went on mic that you're actually at the moment wading through uh, stacks of, of submissions for the, yeah. the judging panels kind of corner of that festival. So you must have seen, you know, far, far more short films than I ever have. So yeah, big recommendation <laughs> on it's a, it's a Beautiful Day. Jack, Hello. producer Jack Mills, not to cut you out of this <laughs> yeah, conversation, of have you got uh, any, anything to throw into the ring in terms of yeah, an so animated thing that you really love? Think of you. Uh, yeah, so obviously the Studio Ghibli, which Claire mentioned a minute ago, um, I think for me that was the first time I sort of got into Japanese sort of animated stuff. Um, and I would have to say my favourite one was probably um, Spirited Away, um, which basically opened the doors to all of the films that were produced by Studio Ghibli, uh, Pompoko, uh, Princess Mononoke and that sort of thing. Currently running a season on film four, by the way. I should shoehorn shoot, shoot okay, that in, cool. yeah, if people have got access. Um, and also, I think for me, I love the stop motion. Uh, it's something that I like quite a lot and I work on myself. Um, the, obviously the Arden stuff is, is up there with, with stop motion and we're going to be talking about another stop motion for our feature later so. uh, yeah no it's good, a really good pick I mean aside from I guess the, the slight disappointment of Early Man that we, oh, yeah, that we discussed on the show Claire did you have a chance to see Early Man the, the recent Arden film I did I took the girls to the cinema to see that and I got bored but the girls loved it right uh, so that was interesting <laughs> yeah because I just I was just a bit disappointed I think I was expecting a little too much from it, whereas the girls were just going in, um, watching some really funny little characters 
yeah. playing football and and so they really enjoyed it so that, that's the problem with being a grown-up sometimes i think you, you're you bring more baggage to it i guess you yeah. Do. yeah yeah those kinds of expectations can often only really lead to disappointment when they're as high as they are yeah, for something so, like yeah. ardman right or whether it's ardman or other things that you've been mentioning both of you like like miyazaki and studio ghibli as well um or pixar and and dreamworks and, oh, yeah, and whoever, pixar, whoever it might be Absolutely. So um, we are going to come on to an animated film that I'm I'm going to really put my neck out and say that I think at least me and Claire are going to be quite positive about later on. But we'll see. That one is Isle of Dogs. Before we get to that, though, we will be back in just a moment with the section of our show, Popcorn Movies. And we are back with Popcorn Movies. This is the section of the show where we walk up to a virtual popcorn counter, we dip our virtual hands into virtual popcorn, we take out that popcorn, we use it as a really stretched metaphor for throwing back and forwards opinions about films. Claire, this week, I believe, you have seen some movies, which is helpful for this show. Um, what's something that you've seen and think is worth talking about? Okay, I've, I've, it was a rewatch of a film I'd watched uh, when I was quite a young teen, actually. It's uh, Shirley Valentine, Ooh. written by Willie Russell. So Shirley Valentine was, the film was made in 1989, and the play, originally a play that was uh, written by Willie Russell sometime before that, and um, Shirley, it follows Shirley, who's, you know, an older, slightly older lady uh, in that her children have moved out. She works and cooks for her husband and she's bored and she's wondering what happened to her youth. And it's kind of that uh, midlife crisis kind of, um, sort of uh, that point of a lady's life. Mm. Um, and she, the kind of communication with her husband has kind of, faltered a bit and she spends more time talking to her kitchen wall than she would to her husband and all this is very very funny um set in Liverpool um and it's what's really great is that she talks to the camera it's that that fourth wall is broken down she's talking to you directly as an audience member straight away so as you're kind of learning about her and her reminiscing about her her um, school years and her teen years um, her friend Jane wins a holiday to Greece, all, all expenses paid. And her friend Jane says, right, we're going, come on, pack, let's get you a passport. This woman didn't even have her passport. Um, and uh, they go off to Greece. And it's really um, about Shirley finding herself and who she is now. And I remember watching this as a very young teenager and just laughing a lot. It's so funny. And the fact that she talks to you directly was just like, you don't often see that in film. You would see it more in theatre, uh, but not in film. And um, and I just, it was just one of those films that kind of stuck in my mind and I yeah. watched loads of other ones. And then recently um, I went to a play reading of Willie Russell's play Stags and Hens, which is, again, another comedy. And um, I thought, oh, do you know, I think I'll revisit Shirley Valentine. And watching it now as a woman in her late 30s and this Shirley was only 30, 40, 42, I was thinking, good grief, this is quite incredible. I, I love how films make you think and how some films stay with you. And I'm starting to think that maybe watching it as a teen, it was almost like a, a cautionary tale. Right. I am married. I do have children. 
I go on holiday with my girlfriends and have a great time. And not once has it ever been a problem or it's like it's I do feel that Willie Russell has was has always been a woke babe. <laughs> he's always been a feminist and he's telling these stories about women as a, almost like shaking them by the shoulders, like for Christ's sake, woman, get alive, have fun, do stuff. So so and, you've you've got to ensure that you're not staring at your own kitchen walls and breaking yeah. the imaginary fourth wall and talking to an audience that isn't there in the next few years, I guess, right? Exactly, exactly. I think it's it has aged and it was made in nineteen eighty nine, so there's the, the whole fashion and, and I, I would hope in some ways her outlook is very different to a woman now who is in their early 40s. I would I would really hope that that is the case because I am not Shirley Valentine and I'm proud of it. Can I, uh, I I'm going to try not to do this sort of all show, but it is one of my favourite activities, the old um, starting a conversation or part of the conversation with the, uh, the fragment, have you seen? But have you seen um what have i done to deserve this the pedro almodovar film no i haven't oh it's it's a huge recommendation but only or based on what you're saying about this movie because i haven't seen the film that you're talking about um but as soon as you started describing it a bell went off in my head which linked to that movie which i reviewed on this show probably i don't know 30 episodes ago or something like that but uh yeah just another story about a woman who is a mother who is looking after every Everybody, including her husband's mother uh, and he's being neglected and her needs aren't met and she's well as the title suggests uh, what has she done to deserve that considering that she had all of her own sort of dreams and aspirations is really really good and it's like one of those Pedro Almodovar films that doesn't get a lot of uh, a lot of press a lot of love I guess so yeah I, I would recommend that to, to both you to Jack and to you know our, our hordes of devoted listeners um I uh, wanted to come on to, well, my first popcorn pick for this week, I I suppose, which is one that I can keep really, really brief because it is not so good. It is uh, a documentary movie called Bugs, which I found on the Netflix streaming service. And it's interesting, and I want to get you guys' takes on on this as as something to pull from this mediocre experience. Um, the, The film is all about the possibility of people in the future finding more of their protein uh, source from critters, bugs, uh, little creepy crawlies and stuff. As you know, the parts of the world at the moment, you can buy, you know, um, what, caramelised scorpions and, and like ants on sticks and stuff like that. I've, I've sort of... a novelty. Yeah, I've da- well, you, you go to, to, to China or like Southeast Asia and you can dabble in that. I've like dabbled in those a little bit. But we over here, we basically see that as, you know, a part of I'm a celebrity, get me out of here or something like that, right? That's as, yes. as far as it goes. <laughs> so what the documentary is, is there are these uh, two or three guys and they're involved in the, I think it's called the Nordic Food Project or something like that. Um, they are a centre who is trying to research ways of finding what they describe as deliciousness or levels of deliciousness in um, non-standard foods. And the one that they want to focus on here is bugs. It becomes this sort of fairly politicised polemic about the way in which big business is going to hijack this operation and uh, homogenise it and maybe just look at it as a chance to profiteer as as big businesses want to do. The problem with the documentary, um, as a a cautionary uh, word before you go seek it out, is that there is one of the most insufferable characters, a human being, uh, real life characters in this grouping. He's a guy called Ben, 
and he presents his, himself as some sort of like um just just sort of above everybody else in like intellect and aspiration and foresight and by the end of what a hundred and hundred minutes or so of this documentary you never want to hear the guy's voice again um the the problem also or the second problem with the documentary is that structurally it's a bit all over the place it's like you know it's the kind it's the kind of work that jack mills our, our producer here would be absolutely ashamed of because like it doesn't have a thrust it doesn't have a real narrative thrust it's like they've got a load of different bits of footage like here's us upsetting a uh ant's nest and finding the ants but here's us at a conference with people talking about the benefits of eating bugs and none of it really congeals into something satisfying um, by the end but my question to you guys is have you and also would you eat any bugs if it was a good source of protein in the future yes have you tried anything yeah, yeah, just a few things like um, and uh, nothing. Um, I've only had like dried stuff, like uh-huh. the like worms and blood ants and a couple of other things. A- any good? Nah, not really. Bit bland, but I, I suppose it would depend on how you cook it. You know, a bit of garlic and onion. Yeah. That'd be nice. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what these guys are all about. It's like, oh, we're not just going to give you an ant. and Like, they make a big play at the beginning of saying, like, well, when people look at a plate of ants, they don't want to eat that. Yeah. But if you blend the ants up with some, you know, other ingredients, then you don't know that it's really ants. And it sort of flips a switch in your brain and allows people to see that as, like, fine dining or a delicacy rather than something that's just been crawling around on the ground. Yeah, because so- I'm sure that some people in fine dining would use insects as part of their weird and wonderful courses probably Heston Blumenthal would use that sort of thing yeah exactly but that I mean it kind of cuts what you say Jack it kind of cuts to the heart of this documentary and, and where you'll go on the issue yeah. if not the the ropey way that they I put mean, it together well just in so much as is it that in the future we can find a way as a as a, a race to utilize the protein potential of, of bugs or is it a way that wanky chefs can sell overpriced, yeah, like flambéed yeah. fire ants or whatever. I think when you when you first brought that up, all I could think of was um, the Lion King and Timon and Pumbaa giving <laughs> the worms. It's, yeah, it's an animated tinged episode this time out. Claire, uh, take us out of this creepy crawly uh, little review, and uh, what have you got second for this week? The second one is another eighties flick, actually, Pretty in Pink ah. from nineteen eighty six. I did watch this, admittedly, it was a couple of weeks ago. Um, Of course, it was written by John Hughes, which does the best teen movies. Um, But this one was directed by um, Howard Dutch. Yeah, it's uh, about Andy, who's from a poorer household, um, and she's raised by her single dad. And the prom is coming up, and the rich boy, Elaine, falls for her and, um, and wants to take her to the prom. But, of course, he's a rich boy, and there's that social divide you know what will their peers on either side think um but also um her best friend for years and years um ducky he's got a serious crush on her as well he's actually in love with her and he always has been so there's this real kind of bit of a tug of war you know bit of a love triangle in a sense even though she's never been um in love with ducky he's just like always been her best friend they're very much in the friend zone according to andy so i was watching it and again it was another one i watched as a teenager and loved it loved it even more thinking oh god they just don't make films like this anymore and then i went to see ladybird i was like yes 
I really, I was so pleased because teen movies just got a bit meh for a long time and and Ladybird and and what you were saying about Love, Simon, that you were surprised with. I'm really hoping that teen movies having a bit of a resurgence. Again, it's me talking about films that promote conversation. I'm all for that. And I think it's it's important. They cover important subjects, but also they're entertaining, entertaining and full of characters that you want to actually hang out with. So um, so yeah, I I really recommend Pretty in Pink, even though it's it's a, it's dated again because of it being set in its day, but it's um, still got a lot of um topics that are still resonate with today's. Yeah, it's it's a really strong recommendation for for John Hughes in general, for anyone who hasn't discovered John Hughes movies at this point. And then interesting what you say about Lady Bird, because I guess Greta Gerwig being the age that she is in her mid 30s, came up, grew up on uh, John Hughes as well. And then you're right. I mean, I think that the, the teenage populace that I can in no way speak for probably do want some or or should want or should be given a slightly higher standard than some of the like absolute dreck that's trotted out um at at least in terms of cinematic releases i mean like anything if you look around enough you're going to find gems you're going to find you know diamonds in the rough but a lot of the the major release uh, teen movies do seem to be a little bit disappointing from my uh and your and to some extent jack's fairly detached distance from being an actual teenager Um, (laughs) Second popcorn movie for this week, talking of uh, sort of connecting with the youth. Um, I watched another documentary. It's my uh, theme for my popcorn reviews this week. Uh, I watched I Am Heath Ledger, finally, which is the documentary about Heath Ledger, who obviously tragically passed away at age only 28, um, having, well, having just completed uh, the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, or partly completed that. Uh, yeah, good, good correction and uh, and also completed his role of course as the joker in in the dark knight uh, the one that really tipped people over into the idea that heath ledger was a, a, a real force to be reckoned with as an actor and then obviously got the oscar posthumously for that performance and um the documentary is called i am heath ledger a few points on this documentary it's worth watching for sure if you've got even a passing interest in acting hollywood or heath ledger himself it I should address the fact that the documentarian has called this film I Am Heath Ledger without actually having access to direct Heath Ledger input. So we've got clips from movies, from uh, 10 Things I Hate About You at the very beginning of his career, through uh, A Knight's Tale when he was blowing up as like a face in Hollywood, a young face. Uh, We have, um, yeah, footage basically dotted throughout his career and just jumping over a few movies there. And we have input from people like Naomi Watts, uh, Ben Mendelsohn, Jimon Honsu, uh, Catherine Hardwick, the director, Ang Lee, who has some great stuff to say about him. Uh, Emil Hirsch, all kinds of people contribute, but there is this hole at the middle of the documentary, which is this clearly is not like presenting it as I am Heath Ledger. No, I am a documentarian who has done this before with other people and kind of presented something as being more autobiographical than it actually is. Um, I would say that the biggest takeaways I had, though, is that I wasn't really aware of quite how close Heath Ledger was with the musician Ben Harper to the extent that he had directed a music video for him that Ben Harper in this fairly um, 
as you would expect, fairly gushing documentary. Ben Harper describes as, you know, one of the best music videos he's ever seen. And he was convinced that Heath Ledger would be a force both in front of and behind the camera into the future if, if he had obviously survived. Um, and then also the effect and impact that he had on the, the musician Bon Iver, who blew up in the you know years since, since Heath Ledger passed away, to the extent that on Bon Iver's self-titled album, the opening track is called Perth, and that was a dedication to Heath Ledger himself because of the impact that he'd had on, on, on Bon Iver, on that guy. So, um, yeah, it, it's touching in places. Um, it's somewhat revealing in places, I guess, particularly when it comes to the role of Mary Kate Olsen in the, in the eventual demise of Heath Ledger and that, that slightly um, murky business. But I would say it's, it's maybe not the, um, the, the sort of, monolithic testament to this guy that i was that i was hoping for and maybe that'll come with a bit more remove from his untimely death um well i've made that all a bit down haven't yes. i at the end there <laughs> shall i bring it back up jack have you got a popcorn movie that's all sort of jolly and fun yes so i thought as this week we are reviewing isle of dogs that i would watch the debut of wes anderson uh bottle rocket fantastic is, yeah. choice, by the way yeah. jack so this was released back in 1996, um, and it was also co-written by Owen Wilson, which mm. is pretty cool. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed this film. Um, just the set pieces were incredible. You know, you know, it was only very much set on the road and in a motel, um, and then the love story that sort of came on in the middle and the friendship between Owen Wilson. Uh, I can't remember. It's it's, it's, Luke Wilson, it's Luke Wilson, Luke Wilson, and the cleaner who yes, get yeah, together and, and yeah. And so I thought that, you know, that sort of bilingual sort of thing where they didn't know how to speak to each other, but they could still communicate the sort of body language and stuff like that. I thought that was really empowering. And it would be, would it not, the kind of thing that you could easily get wrong and could come across oh, yeah, slightly absolutely. offensive. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's almost like Wes Anderson movies could be wrongly accused of handling that stuff badly. <laughs> uh, more on that later. Yeah. But um, yeah, funny as well, oh, right? Absolutely. Like laugh yes. out loud funny, that movie. And for me, you know, Owen Wilson's, um, he hasn't been that funny in several of the movies he's released in, you know, the last sort of 10, 15 years. I, I, I would bulk was... at that only because I thought he was uh, at turns slightly hysterical in, in Inherent Vice, but I know yes. that that movie kind of divided people. Paul didn't like it as much as me, so I should hush down <laughs> probably, but... But yeah, no, I think this was, for me, this was probably Owen Wilson's best performance that I've watched in a very long time. Um, and so, yeah, I would re recommend going to see this if you enjoy any other Wes Anderson films. Well, yeah, and you say going to see it, it's it's on movie yes, streaming. Yeah, find it on movie, yeah. Yeah, we, we are, like, as we've mentioned before, we're not actually sponsored by the platform movie, uh, the streaming service, but we would love to be, and also we are <laughs> huge advocates of it, because it's really, really good. Yeah, and then, yeah, when you see a new film pop up and it's Bottle Rocket from, from way back in the day from Wes Anderson, props to movie for, for that pick. Um, we will be back then in just a moment with the next section of our show that we call Coming Attractions. So back we are, as Paul Anderson would say, after every single section linking every part to every other part. Uh, we are back with the section uh, Coming Attractions. Coming Attractions where we preview films that haven't yet been released, at least in our neck of the woods, but we're anticipating in the future. Claire, what are you getting all flustered about that is coming out in the not too distant future? Well, over the last week, I saw um, a trailer for Terminal. Um, I don't know if you've heard of that yet. It's a, a drama thriller 
Right. Uh, a twisting tale of two assassins. And it's starring Margot Robbie, Simon Pegg, Mike Myers, who I've not seen do anything for some time, Dexter Fletcher, who's usually behind the camera directing, and um, Max Irons, who I think is, well, is quite a young British guy. It's Jeremy, Irons, Jeremy Irons' son. Is it? Yeah. Wow. Well, no pressure then on him. Yeah. Paul, Paul and I have talked about this recently that it's a little disheartening, maybe, when you know, when you see like a young actor or actress and you think, like, this person's brilliant, where have they come from? And then you realize that their father, mother, or both are incredibly famous and well connected. And I think yeah. Max Irons falls into that category. <laughs> he was in he was in the handmaid's tale recently oh right okay well it, it, the trailer looks so interesting it's but it's written and directed by vaughn stein steam maybe um who um i imdb'd him as i do with most people and he's got um 29 titles as assistant director mostly crowds and things like that but the sort of films that he's been working on is really really varied so i can imagine that that was almost like an apprenticeship leading up to this feature directorial debut and um the the this trailer um it looks almost comic book like in that the colors such saturated a bit like um atomic blonde i don't know if you've seen yeah, you saw yeah, that yeah we reviewed it yeah yeah but more more like more uh, saturated color than that it looks very stylish and it's 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 kind of been written as a, a drama thriller but already from the trailer you think God, the cast is full of comic actors and there's going to be this really nice cutting I would hope cutting script that kind of drops humour into the most darkest of places so it looks really very interesting I'm looking forward to that apparently it's going to be out in the US in on May the 11th so I'm guessing we'll probably get it a week before or after that yeah so ne- yeah that seems like and and uh, from my side, Claire, I would say great that this thing is a scant ninety minutes. I'm all for yeah. a ninety minute film. Me too. I've been talking about this a lot lately. How I think that's why I watch a lot of films from the eighties because yeah. they were about about ninety minutes long. I I like that because I'm a busy person and I want to watch as many films as I can. So ninety minutes sits very well with me. Yeah, there's there's little worse than like when you're watching a film that's reasonably good and you think like, yeah, I've enjoyed this. This has been great. How long have I got to go? And then there's like forty five minutes left, and you think, you know, I'm not enjoying it that much. The only other thing I've got on Terminal because you brought this to my attention. I'm glad that you have, is that it will be a sweet relief to see Simon Pegg not as that monstrosity of a sort of prosthetically aged man that he was in Ready Player One. So I'm really looking forward I've to like... I've not seen that yet. Oh, I want to scrub that from my mind for eternity because it was horrible. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but don't tell Paul because uh, he liked that a lot more than me. Um, my pick for a coming attraction this week, also a scant, well, 92 minutes, so a tiny, tiny bit longer, is uh, a film that should be releasing, uh, well, is releasing, actually, at the end of this week, in fact, tomorrow, uh, which would be Friday the 6th of April. However, it doesn't have a release right where we are, but it is showing on um, selected screens around the country. It is called Thoroughbreds, and this, I believe, or I was informed, actually, by one Jack Mills, that this is Anton Yelchin's last performance. Anton Yelchin, of course, another young actor who tragically passed away in sort of really weird and unfortunate circumstances with sort of 
running himself over, I guess. There's an ongoing lawsuit, I think, there. Uh, it also, this film stars uh, Anya Taylor-Joy, who is on the up and up um, in things like The Witch, that people um, have had great things to say. She was very good in Split. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, Split a film that I did not like at all but you're absolutely right she was really <laughs> she good at it uh, yeah I, th- I think she's great in, in most things this one it seems to be about two um, well thoroughbreds two upper class well reared young women one of whom for various reasons doesn't experience any human emotions is completely sort of deadpan at all times they are brought together in a huge mansion with the stepdad of one of them and from that point we get this kind of horror infused drama thriller the director as a first time feature director i believe and the names just disappeared off my monitor but um the director has said that he's been heavily influenced by uh stanley kubrick and particularly the shining and the way in which the environment becomes the sort of um psychological map of the characters on screen I'm into the idea of this movie. It looks interesting. I think, again, Anton Yelchin was great whilst he was around. Um, Anya Taylor-Joy, as I say, is is a rising star. Uh, I look forward to it, and it should be available to everyone uh, in the UK and US very, very soon, if not tomorrow. Um, I think that brings us to the end of the section, doesn't it, Jack? You're not going to pitch in with a coming attraction. No, unfortunately not. The coming attraction that Jack's looking forward to is our feature review section, which will be up next. So here we are with our feature review section in which, as you might have guessed, we cover a couple of features in review form. The first one for this week is one that we've already been uh, excitedly chatting about uh, early in the show, which is the new one from Wes Anderson. This one is Isle of Dogs. Uh, As I mentioned at the outset of the show, this is Wes Anderson's second foray into stop motion work. The first was the Fantastic Mr. Fox um, adaptation that he put out in 2009 or came out in 2009, I should say. And um, a film that I really really enjoyed um going into this review of isle of dogs i just want to get a bit of background claire into where you are with first of all wes anderson i think it's clear that you're a fan where did you stand on fantastic mr fox in in the in brief terms well i can't i didn't know that that question is one i can't answer in that because i'm just how awesome it is <laughs> the whole time it's not really fair so, is it no no i loved it because it was the first time we'd seen stop animation for a long time um so to have a feature it just worked brilliantly and certainly i felt it was sensitive to roald dahl's original um book um it just felt right it was a bit like the um illustrations that you would find in his books but but not ink so yeah. i can't quite express how I felt that the that animation worked perfectly for that story and, and its original source. Um, yeah. I, I totally agree with you. I totally agree. I, it was one that I reviewed on the show because I didn't catch it until like 2014, 15. Oh, okay. It was like a wow. few yeah. few years ago for, did, for whatever um, reason. Did uh, Quinton Blake have anything to do with it as well? I'm not sure if he did. He wasn't, I don't think there's anything to do with the uh, the film, no, but I think that they they did look at those illustrations and think, oh, it needs to be grubby it needs to be not smooth it's not pixar type yeah. story it needs to have a bit of grit that's in right, it yeah. and that's 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, grimy, not smooth, rough around the edges, (laughs) just like perfect segue into uh, Isle of Dogs. Uh, Isle of Dogs, which of course is a a very Wes Anderson, um, there's a clever little nod in the very title, right? Because Isle of Dogs is also I Love Dogs, if that's gone over anybody's heads. Uh, Wes Anderson is a self-confessed advocate of dogs of all kinds, he's a very big fan. It could be said that when you watch this movie, he might actually be militantly anti-cat, but that's a conversation for another time. I have a cat, I care for cats and dogs. Uh, We Um, we do as well, and I, um, I have to say, I don't think it did make cat lovers look that bad. No, no, I, I, I agree with you. Um, so the movie, uh, in terms of a plot setup, is set in a future version of Japan um, where dogs of all kinds, all shapes and sizes, are being uh, routinely banished to an island, the uh, eponymous Isle of Dogs, where they are going to have to live out their days on... Uh, it's actually called Trash Island, Trash isn't it? Island, yeah, yeah a, a, a sort of junk heap. Uh, reminiscent of something in like Wally or whatever, um, so that they do not infect any of the inhabitants of the archipelago of Japan with um, dog flu. Is that what they yes. call that? Uh, some some kind of dog flu. Uh, so this is a film that could be taken on its face. It could be taken as a sort of metaphor in terms of like foreign policy and global warming and environmental issues. And we can dig into that in a moment. But before we do, let's hear a little clip. You're Felix's mate. I beg your pardon? I mean, I I think you made it with Felix, if I heard it right. That's none of your business. No, no, I I don't suggest whether it actually happened or not. I'm just saying that I I recognize you from when I heard that rumor. I think I'm going to say goodnight. Wait, 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 wait. No, wait, start over. Who cares about Felix? I'm chief. Okay, so what you've heard there is a scene that involved two of the biggest stars, I suppose, in the cast here. Those people were Brian Cranston and Scarlett Johansson. And the scene was one in which they meet on the island. Um, Scarlett Johansson seems to be playing this um, dog that is slightly unattainable and a bit better than the other dogs and maybe a little bit um, uh, sort of prissy, it seems, at first. And Brian Cranston is very much the... um, the pit dog, the kind of stray dog, the mongrel, the outsider, the fighter, the scrapper, who looks quite uh, sort of worse for wear when he meets up with all of the other central dogs and forms a little band um, amongst the central cast. I mean, let's be honest, Claire, amongst the central cast of Isle of Dogs is absolutely everyone. That's the easiest way to summarise It's an ensemble, definitely an ensemble. Incredible. I mean, just reading out a few of the bigger names in case you don't know, we got Brian Cranston, I mentioned, Scarlett Johansson, Bill Murray, Bob Balaban, Jeff Goldblum, Greta Gerwig, Francis McDormand. Uh, We've got Harvey Keitel. We've got F. Murray Abraham. We've got Yoko Ono. Everybody (laughs) is in this movie and they come together to tell this story of basically one boy's love for his dog and his odyssey to be reunited with that dog. That's the the superficial uh, superficial elements, I guess, of Isle of Dogs. Claire, first of all, um, tell me, if you will, what you thought, because you've just talked about uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox aesthetically, what you thought when you saw the sort of look and the feel and the, the art style that Wes Anderson had gone for here, did you feel intrigued, excited, uh, put off? How, what was your reaction, at, you know, in the first few minutes of this movie? Oh, just, I was 
um, <laughs> again, over the moon with it because because um, knowing that the dogs were on this trash island, it did need to look grubby. But when you see the scenes um, in Japan, um, it, it looks like to like that kind of Tokyo. Not, it's not quite Tokyo that it's set in, but um, it's got that Japanese feel and colour and neon and things like that. And I was lucky enough to actually see the sets and the puppets um, yeah. at an exhibition in, in London. I saw it, I went twice actually. <laughs> um, I, I dropped the girls off at school, jumped on the train and went to um, um, the store, um, Store X gallery on um, the Strand. Mm. And it was a, a free exhibition to see the sets and the puppets. And then they had recreated one of the noodle uh, bars in the film to life size and you could buy some ramen and sit at tables and ha eat and it was just this immersive oh it was just amazing I loved it so much so I did that on my own and just talked to like-minded people and yeah. took loads of photos because the actual sets were so beautifully lit that even if you took photos on your phone it looked like a steal from the film it was it was that good it was so well set up um, and then, but I'd saw that before I'd seen the film. So then went to see the film with my husband and our two girls. And then we went to the exhibition again <laughs> to take to, to take the kids and my husband. And they were just, oh, just gobsmacked because because they had that lovely bit of um, prior knowledge because they'd seen the film. They're like, oh, that's, and they could name all the characters and they could, you could um, really see how intricate, even the backgrounds of these sets are the teeny tiny little vials of uh, all the stuff in the lab scenes, you know, all the chem chemistry sets and whatnot. They're teeny tiny, and so it's just one of those things that is it's perfectly balanced for this film. I think it really felt very much set in in Japan in, yeah. in a really good way. And it's interesting what you said about um, you went to see the exhibition and each part of the exhibition looked like it could be a still from the film. And then if you flip that the other way, when you watch the movie, almost every frame could be taken from the movie and put up on your wall as a piece of Wes yes. Anderson artwork, right? It, oh, it, the, is that it was all striking. symmetrical, symmetrical. Yeah. It's so beautifully framed. Um, there's the, yeah, the, the colours, um, even in the most muted of, of um, scenes. There was such texture. Mm. It's just gorgeous. I was just now, smiling. <laughs> now, I, I want to touch on, on something else that you mentioned, which was that you went to see the movie with your kids as well. Um, we were talking about this in relation to Monsters, Inc. earlier on and, you know, how your children perceive movies that maybe you enjoyed or, or still enjoy. Um, this film, as you mentioned as well, is, uh, let's say, sort of like at points, a little bit grubby. Um, there is uh, an antenna or a propeller, I think, that goes through mm -hmm. the head and stays there through the head yeah. of a, a little boy for quite a long time. There are dogs uh, being sick. There are uh, bits of dogs falling off. Did you There's get a scene any... of surgery as yeah. well. Did, did you have any moments in the movie where you felt like, oh, this is going to be a bit uh, tough on, on younger children? Or do you think it's handled in a way that is light enough to allow that to sort of pass and... and and for the for the kids to really like revel in the spectacle of the whole thing. Exactly that. Yeah, I didn't find 
if it was live action, it would feel much more um, gruesome, to be honest. But because it, yeah. because it's animated, it's got that that does um, kind of detach you in a really good, safe way. Yeah. You can immerse yourself in that world and let yourself get lost in it. But it, you, you don't, I didn't feel it would be at all inappropriate for children. Um, no, it just handled very well. It, like, going back to um, Fantastic Mr. Fox. What me and my daughters were laughing at most is that um, the dialogue between a lot of the characters would involve swearing, but mm. because it's for children as well, they, they say, oh, for cuss sake, and they yeah. say cuss, 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 and it just makes you laugh. So I think that he, uh, Wes Anderson's always very mindful that it's going to be animated, It's gonna, kids are going to want to see this, so let's just really tread that fine line of it being appropriate for, for adults and children. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I would agree. I mean, I think that, um, that well, we're, we're basically, essentially what we're doing in lieu of a review of this film is gushing about how much we love Wes Anderson. But I I, 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 on that, though, it's an interesting one for me because I, you know, cards on the table, I absolutely loved Isle of Dogs, absolutely loved it. And I absolutely loved um, Fantastic Mr. Fox 2. And as Jack reviewed um, briefly today, Bottle Rocket, it's another Wes Anderson that I love. I haven't loved all of Wes Anderson's films. Are you a, an acolyte of like everything that he's done, Claire? Or is there any anything sort of in that back catalogue that struck you as maybe not not your thing? For for me, my my some of my favourites were like the Royal Tenenbaums and uh, Steve Zissou, and um, more, actually my most favourite is got to be the Darjeeling Limited. That is really just beautiful to look at but I love the story and and the three brothers their their dynamics were really interesting but the one I didn't really like was um the Budapest Hotel one his last film right yeah so this is this last week yeah I can't actually I I can't remember much about it which makes me think it wasn't that good it was all in like a 4-3 ratio. It had that sort of square look yeah. to it. And and again, it was very like of a piece um, sort of with itself. Like it had that, that distinctive Wes Anderson style to it, but obviously with live action and sort of a, a quirky uh, set of, of, of different characters, I suppose. I think I went for it, but definitely not as much as I went for this. I mean, this is one of those films where when I came out and I thought about talking uh, about the film on the show, and uh, at that point I thought I was going to be having this conversation with Paul, uh, the regular co-host, and I thought, I know that Paul is going to have some kickback against some of the sort of twier, um what he might describe as sort of more... Um, I don't know, hipster elements of Wes Anderson's sort of style. However, I feel this thing, and it's not even to sort of argue with Paul when he can't defend himself, but I felt this thing coming out that like Wes Anderson at this point is one of those directors that is doing work of such a quality that we should be thankful that we're around to see him when he's producing that work. Like, I genuinely feel that strongly about this movie. I think that it is... It is very much bordering if not over the line of being a, a, a real work of art and I think that it will stand the test of time now the thing that I've heard in the negatives column perhaps from some quarters is that Wes Anderson is less than delicate when it comes to dealing with um, things like uh, race perhaps gender oh, I don't, I perhaps, don't agree but, with that but yeah I, I'm with you 
Can you tell me though, Claire, what's your response when you hear that stuff? I mean, I think the one that struck me most is what seemed like a real stretch, which was a journalist, and I forget who they were writing for. They were saying that when the Brian Cranston uh, character is uh, later in the film cleaned, he turns from a uh, sort of ineloquent black dog, essentially, because he's covered in, in muck and dirt, into a white dog who, you know, becomes a better person for that. To me, that feels like a massive projection on the part of the, the viewer rather than something that's actually there. I mean, how does this criticism strike you, Claire? That blows my mind. It, oh, God, it's, that is political correctness going way, way, way over the top. It just seems ridiculous. They have to pick... Uh, Something like that. It's like they they were talking about on um, another program. I may not have to mention the title. Um, but I was screaming at the, the TV, thinking, how on earth are they complaining about how the the dogs' names were in English? I my husband works for a Japanese company. Spoke to mm. Japanese colleagues, and they're like, oh yeah, English dog names is really common in Japan. Yeah, absolutely. And I was like. There's no, there was no, um, actually it was co-written by um, a, a, Japanese a, close, writer. a Japanese writer yeah. who also was involved in the casting because of course half of it's in Japanese. So they wanted authentic Japanese people being mm. those voices and they, and oh, I just, I find that the, um, the nitpicking at how he's not been sensitive other well, cultures in well, a low voltage. Claire, did you did you see uh, that movie, A Ghost Story, that we went pretty pretty strongly no, in favour of? No, it's on my to watch list. Because it, it only links to this in, in one regard, which is the fact that there was some criticism then of the uh, director and, and, and writer for not um, subtitling the uh, Spanish cast members in that film, right? I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, and the Spanish cast members being painted as sort of like more aggressive and unreasonable than the, the American cast members, which I thought was just off base in on that occasion. And I think David Lowry didn't even need to really answer to, to that criticism. And I think the same goes here. Like when people are saying that, you know, oh, the Japanese don't even get blessed with, with subtitles, as if Wes Anderson is is shunning the nation of Japan and just sort of co-opting their history and then leaving them without a voice. I mean, it's a story about dogs, not about people. And yes, there is a, a white character played by Greta Gerwig, who is a bit of a... Um, uh, a, a, a plays a pivotal role, a, a positive pivotal role in in sort of liberating or, or perhaps helping the dogs in the film. I, I by no means feel that this is a film that has overstepped in any way or trodden on on the culture that it's depicting. In fact, what I got here as a person that and Paul would say uh, you you mention this every single time we're on the show, but like. As a person who lived in Asia for three years, what I got from the movie is feeling a real sense of someone in Wes Anderson who cares deeply about depicting the culture and richness and um, sort of influence of a country like Japan. So quite the opposite to, to any kind of criticism. Jack, you've seen this movie as well. I have. Uh, yeah. we're, we're hammering out our views. Yeah. Where, where do you stand? Did you like it? Did you hate it? Why? Uh, I think I'm sort of I'm in the middle in terms of I think I prefer Fantastic Mr. Fox in terms of the sort of animation and stuff like that. Mm. Um, but I, I loved all the voice acting, the characters in it were very powerful. And he, Wes Anderson usually goes for the same actors in a lot of his stuff. So I think you almost know what to expect in the way of the writing when they've got those actors on board. 
And uh, yeah, I thought it was a fantastic story. Everything was there. I loved how there wasn't always the Japanese language. It was all sort of in English as well, but they still kept to that sort of Japanese culture. And do you, just do say, you agree yeah. when the characters, are, the Japanese characters are speaking Japanese and it's not subtitles, you know what they're saying. That was really, it was you know really what they're saying. They had because a translator in most of it. And there, I wasn't yeah, there is a so translator, you're right. Yeah. And, and, and even without the translator, you you know what those characters are saying. You don't need to know Japanese to understand because Wes Anderson and his animation team have done such a good job of expressing their feeling and intent through their physical movements, their facial movements and so on that I think, yeah, it just makes that point a bit moot, right? Yeah, I thought that, you know, that was a pretty fun element of it, I think. Yeah. And just the, the colours of the dogs and just the way they looked, um, especially with the sort of the flu and that whole sort of thing. The sneezes. The sneezes were really powerful. And it was like the coughing. <laughs> so yeah. funny. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, I, I I really think that, you know, to, to bring this home, I, I think that this is it's a, a gem. And I mean, Claire, as you've um, you've told us, you've already been to see the, the exhibition twice. The film mm-hmm. once or more than once? Just once. Will you go again at the cinema, do you think? I'd be tempted to, to yes. because when I when I watched it with the girls, the girls loved it. They were just talking about the characters and the, the look of it and everything. They really, really enjoyed it. And just me as a as a grown up, I did feel that possibly there could have been a bit more um, pace in places. It yeah. didn't. It just dragged sometimes a little bit, just because that's almost um, his style, and that everyone is so deadpan. The lines are so funny, but it's very leveled, which can work. It can add to the humour sometimes. But um, I felt sometimes I wanted a bit more adventure. But that's that's a very light criticism. That's the only fault I could find. Yeah, in it. I, I I can I think I can agree with you on that. I think that um, as much as I'm I'm sort of gushing to the extent of, of calling this thing a, a work of art, which I think it is. Oh yeah. I I think that the probably the weakest element, and still you know not a weak element, but the weakest element is the sort of thrust of the the narrative itself. Yeah. And I think that there's so much visually and and orally to enjoy that. I was swept along enough to give it a pass at moments where maybe another movie might have started to feel more draggy to me, I, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I don't think it was, um, I wouldn't say it was as quirky as a lot of his other films in terms of the writing. Mm. I, was sort of, I was sort of expecting that. Um, and that obviously for me was a little bit of a criticism. But apart from that, I thought it was fantastic. So. Yeah. And I mean even taken in isolation that scene of preparing sushi the top-down scene of preparing sushi oh my word like even just that sequence i was like i just want that i just want to watch that again when (laughs) when this is finished it's just beautiful so yeah you know even if you're not the biggest wes anderson fan or you can find fault in his work and i mean I, i know paul likes but doesn't maybe love this movie um so i guess i'm speaking on his behalf a little bit but i would say even from that point of view you're going to find enough to really enjoy here to make it worth your while. So even if you can't catch this at the cinema, I would say make the effort to find it on, you know, DVD or whatever format it is. that you DVD. DVD. <laughs> find a VHS of this, stick it in your player, get, get yourself a laser disc when it comes out um, and you'll enjoy it. Yeah, we will be back in just a moment to talk about a completely different kind of film and that will be uh, Cockerel Blockers or, or as it is being titled, Blockers.
Okay, so second review for this week of a feature variety is going to be blockers. And as I said uh, before that little break, this uh, gets around the fact that the film's intended title is clearly Cock Blockers by putting the silhouette of a cockerel above uh, above the main title on the poster. At the point at which I took that information in with my eyes and saw a bit of the trailer, I thought this is going to be the kind of film that my fiance and I will go to without fail. However, we'll come out of it and go like, yeah, it was all right. You know, he was all right. She wasn't too bad. I've seen him in something before and nothing more will ever be said of it in our communication. However, I think the blockers might be a little bit more than that. Just to set it up, the film tells a fairly simple story of a group of three female friends who are uh, teenage in the United States. They're at high school and they're going to be attending their high school prom. As the plot progresses of, of what little there is in the setup of, of the plot here, they come to form a pact. The pact is based around the fact that all three of them have decided that they're going to lose their virginity on the night of the prom. Their parents, who are played by um, Ike Bar uh, Baron Leslie Mann and John, absolutely giant physique Cena, um, have the idea or take it upon themselves that they are going to prevent their kids from fulfilling this shared ambition the kids i should mention um are played by oh no now i've i've lost the uh, the list of, of people in the movie i the, the reason i've lost the list of people in the movie is because i'm so jazzed about one of them do you know who gideon adlon is you guys no. So you know the, the girl who uh, wears spectacles and he's kind of a bit gawky looking yeah. in this movie, shorter of the three. She, Gideon Adlin, when I looked her up um, after the movie, I realised to my absolute delight that she is Pamela Adlin's daughter. Pamela Adlin is the gravelly voiced um, comedy dynamo who plays opposite Louis C.K., of whom we cannot speak anymore, uh, on the show uh, Louis and now on her own uh, network network show, HBO show. I don't know. She's got her own show now. Uh, she is fantastic. And her daughter is also fantastic. Right. I found the list. Uh, we have Catherine Newton and also uh, Ramona Young. I think that makes up the, the three. Or maybe Ramona Young's the Asian girl. I've missed out one. As well, oh yeah, Geraldine Viswanathan is the one that I missed out. And then uh, in the supporting cast, we also have Gina Gershon that people will know um, without fail if they've ever seen the movie Bound. Uh, before I talk any more about any of that, here's a clip. <laughs> Guys, he's chugging, right? They were butt chugging. You got chunky? this. You got it. No, I'm tagging out. You're in. What? Why me? You've had a baby. Everything's looser down there. I didn't have a baby out of my butt. Even I know that. Can you lube it up with something first? Yeah, I'll just spit on it. No! Why? Because I'm a man? Get over yourself. No, because your saliva's gross. I've, I have lip gloss. I got lip gloss. Fine. I don't have lip gloss. All right, guys, let's get those tubes in. All right, got the lip gloss on there. Okay. On three, okay? On All right. three. Yep. Okay, one. one. So... Claire, going into the movie Cockerel Blockers, were you feeling the same as me that this maybe wasn't trying to aim too high and maybe wasn't going to reach too high in your estimation? Or did you go in with a sort of more positive or open-minded feeling than me? No, not at all. I, I remember seeing the, the trailer a little while ago thinking, oh, I fancy that. Just some brainless, silly comedy. It's just going to be, you know, a bit throwaway, but it'll be entertaining. But yeah, let's, let's go along and see it. And I did. And I, I just loved it. It's just so much more than than what I originally ex expected. 
So I thought it was um, definitely deserves a lot of praise that it has been getting. Yeah, I mean, my setup was was pretty brief, but that is because this is essentially this high concept comedy movie, right? It is three teenage girls want to have sex, their parents don't want them to. That's the plot, yeah. right? Yeah. That is the plot. That's so, so that. yeah, don't, don't come here for a sort of uh, a twisty, turny, like in your attitude plot or something, because you're not going to get it. But yeah. what, what what you do get is like the kind of hijinks that in other hands would be uh, sort of risible and dull. Um, you, you think of something like uh, horrible bosses or, or, you know, the kind of people running around doing crazy stuff, trying to get things out of houses and things. Whereas a film like that didn't work so well for me, this one really did. Um, I think it's up there as one of my favourite comedies that I've certainly seen in the last, I don't know, six months, um, alongside Game Night that we reviewed recently that was a surprise as well. I think, yeah, both of them just came out of nowhere for me. And central to that, I think, is some of these performances. I've mentioned already Gideon Adlin, who I'm just going to follow um, like all semi-religiously now because I'm such a big fan of her mum already and I think she's so good here. Um, but as well, we've got, you know, John Cena, a bit of a breakout role. He's been cameoing in things. He stood out to me as one of the, one of the best, my favourite bits of the film. I thought he was absolutely brilliant. I loved his character and um, his comic timing, like physical, like slapstick comedy, but as well as the, the line delivery, I thought he was spot on. I was really impressed with him. And so game as well, right? I mean, John Cena is a big name. This guy doesn't have to be doing things like, uh, well, you've actually heard in the clip there, uh, what was clearly butt chugging. Now, without ex- <laughs> yeah. explanation, that might seem like a little bit uh, gauche for this little uh, this kind of uh, show that we try and keep relatively respectable. <laughs> but it is a fantastic scene. It's played really, really well, and it takes someone who's willing to commit to it and not think that they're sort of better than the material to really make that thing work and to make you sort of believe in in the sequence. And like you say comedy timing that you wouldn't maybe have expected from from him and then I would add to that Claire I think this is the best I've ever seen Leslie Mann Leslie Mann of course is is Judd Apatow's wife so that doesn't hurt when you're making your way in the world of comedy but at the same time her performance more than justifies her her sort of central role here and I think yeah she's never been better as far as I'm concerned do do you agree yeah I really like her actually she always does not to typecast her but she's often a bit whingy and a bit moany but she was really a bit i've not quite seen her in this kind of character before where she's very maternal and and loving but kind of um having to let go of her daughter who's kind of growing up and that's hard um but for this character certainly but i i only my only problem with her is she looks so damn good that yeah. her daughter almost looks the same age as her. Yeah. She's just, she's got such a beautiful face, like porcelain skin and tiny little frame. She's a very, very beautiful woman. And I, <laughs> there's a brilliant scene just at the beginning, kind of setting up the parents and their relationship with the with their children. And um, they go jogging together and things like that. And you think, they look like sisters. Yeah. But then I was, I was soon taken out of that thought when you, you see the dynamics between the daughter and mother. So it was, it was yeah. really well and, and you're right. They, they kind of do. But then the film sort of plays with that a bit, doesn't it? Because it's like building their relationship where by the time her daughter is on the brink of moving away from her, she perceives her daughter as kind of like her best mate. And Absolutely, she, yeah. she doesn't want to confess to anyone 
least of all herself, that she's going to absolutely fall apart when her daughter goes away. Like, it's funny to make this reference in a, in a sort of throw around comedy like this. But I thought a little bit of that um, uh, Patricia Arquette sequence in Boyhood where she sat at the kitchen table and she says, I thought there would be more when her kid's heading off to college. Because it is like that feeling that I haven't been through as a parent, obviously, but I've seen that on the face of my parents, for example, when I headed off to university or, you know, my sister did the, the same thing. So, yeah, I think even those lighter touches are well handled. And then, like, Leslie Mann, as you said, is maternal and loving, but she's not above fist fighting for a seat in the car against two <laughs> grown men, right? So yeah. It's to that character. Yeah, but but really, really good. I mean, there's not a ton more to say uh, about the film because we don't want to ruin any of the best gags and we don't want to sort of spoil where it ends up going. Although I'm sure you could, you know, take some, some wild guesses at that. Um, as I mentioned before, Gina Gershon's in it and it's great to see her. There's a, a pretty fantastic sequence where uh, she and her partner are uh, in a um, part of their, as part of their their love life they're trying to sort of bring some spice with an activity that then turns into a great sight gag so just a lot to recommend this movie and one of the biggest surprises of the year because i really thought it was going to be like three stars or or below at sort of best really so yeah strong recommendation i think from both of us or all it of certainly us. is it's, and I'm, it's worth mentioning that um kay cannon the female director hooray, women are directing um it's her first feature um, is. yeah she worked on the pitch perfect movies i believe and she you know, wrote all three of those right and, and, she's and, always been in like the writing rooms of like 30 rock and she's yeah. got her writing credits is, is extensive but this yeah. is her first time directing and the guys who wrote it two guys write, wrote it brothers and i think that's his, their first feature credit as writers as well and i yeah. felt that they dealt with feet like girls coming of age and losing their virginity they handled that brilliantly well so I reckon they really did their research which was great yeah, and, and I mean, just to add to the list of, of sort of um, positives and accolades for Kay Cannon, she also um, ended her relationship with Jason Sudeikis because they were previously married. And for listeners to this show, for whatever reason, I've just taken against Jason Sudeikis. So good on her to get out of that guy's life. And, uh, you know, he can he can carry on making sort of uninspiring cameos in, in movies, I guess. Um, so, yeah, that, that one's blockers. We both like it. Jack's going to see it soon. And we'll get Jack's take probably on a future episode of this show. Before we finish for this week, though, we do have one last section. We like to call it credits or end credits, depending on what I'm writing in the show notes. Um, What, if anything, from the world of film, do you want to pay credit to this week, Claire? I'd like to give credit to the security guides at the the Isle of Dogs exhibition that I saw twice. (laughs) Um, The security guides were just so lovely and enthusiastic, and they welcomed you in. They told you straight away, take photos, tweet about it. And their enthusiasm as soon as you walked through the door was just really infectious. And it got everyone talking to each other and you'd start chatting about the film and other Wes Anderson's work. And uh, yeah, it was just that it was like, um, like sort of you'd expect in Disney World without it being so annoying you want to yeah. come in the eye but yeah so the security guys and the the staff in the noodle bar were just brilliant they were just it, it really made for a, a really really good day 
great great trip it's good outing and no no part of the um sort of positive feedback that you're giving to these security guards is because they sort of delicately manhandled you away from the exhibits because you were so into them that you wanted to like steal wow. some of the statues and, and puppets <laughs> take them home there was white lines around and it says do not step over the white line and there was a guy pretty much on each of the sets watching you and they were they were a bit twitchy because it's their job to tell you not to touch anything but they they handled it nicely they would just lean in and you saw oh and you would you would notice that in back you, you there was a lot of respect in the room it was good nice i i'm incredibly envious so i will not hear a further word about this exhibition because it sounds <laughs> so good that i, uh, I want to be able to go to it myself is it still running by the way no it finished today it was only on for two weeks that's it. And it's it free. To build a time machine. And... Yeah, it was yeah, free that's... to get in, but you have to just buy noodles. Um, for my uh, credit this week, I, I think I'm just going to underline a point that I've already made, which is to recommend um, the actress, comedy actress Pamela Adlon. This is the mother of uh, the girl in Blockers that I just talked about, um, Gaten Adlon. Um, particularly her role in Louis. I know we can't really speak about Louis C.K. because Louis C.K. Did, did bad things and, um, you know, is, is kind of trying as best he can to sort of amend for his past sins uh however her appearance in louis is fantastic and she's now got her own show that show's called uh, better things which is basically pamela adlin for the first time stepping out on her own as the central figure in in a, a comedy show and i would recommend both those things i would recommend her i have a lot of time for her and we'll see where it goes for her daughter because yeah, I mean, just just coming out of that movie, my fiance said to me, "Wow, that girl was so sort of pretty, and she looks like she's going to grow into to someone like uh, like Alicia Vikander or something like that." And I was like, "No, but it's it's not quite that. It's something else." And then, yeah, it, it turns out a very talented family. Jack, do you have any sort of credit you want to give for this week? Yeah, so I think my credit this week, as I watched Deadpool uh, yesterday, uh, the end credit scene. So after the credits have started rolling, and you've got the end credit scene. Uh, he basically states that the next Deadpool is going to feature Cable, which now we know. So they kept to the truth. And I thought I'd give credit to that for keeping to their guns. So the new Deadpool movie is kind of around the corner, isn't it? It is around the corner. And you're excited about that too, I, I am presume. I'm excited about that, yeah. Josh Brolin's double dipping in Marvel at the moment, isn't he? In a sense, because he's in Deadpool as Cable, but he's also um, in the next Avengers. Well, he might be more of them actually, um, as. Um, Oh, the dude I can't think of, Thanos. Yeah, I think. Oh, he plays Thanos. Yeah, he does. Something. Yeah, I was going to say this is where we need Paul there to like <laughs> either affirm that or correct because I am much weaker when it comes to those universes than than he is. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I can't share your enthusiasm for Deadpool, but I respect to the death your right to uh, <laughs> say what you have. Um, <laughs> We will be back next week with another show. We may or may not have Paul Anderson um, back in studio or via um, newfangled Skype link. Uh, we will see and we'll announce details of that through social media. In the meantime, please get in touch with us. You can contact us through uh, the Twitter, which is uh, very well run now by, by James. That's at Strangers Cinema. We've also got an Instagram. We've got a Facebook. We've got all the normal places. And most of all, our podcast is available to download to listen to and also to review via services like iTunes and your favourite podcast uh, application. So get on it, tell your friends. We want the listener numbers to go up even higher than they currently are. Thanks for giving us your time and we will see you next time. Shut up and sit down.